This is Good Together, the podcast that inspires you to create change in the world every day. Keep listening for actionable tips and tricks to incorporate eco-friendly practices into your daily life. We've been featured by Apple as the number one podcast for conscious consumers, and we can't wait to welcome you into our community of changemakers. I'm Lisa. And I'm Laura. We're the founders of Brightly.eco, the new platform for conscious consumers. We believe in supporting all creatures, great and small. And our team of experts show you how to live and shop responsibly by sharing world-changing lifestyle ideas, products, and more. To read show notes from Good Together and to browse all of the planet-friendly goodness that we feature, head to brightly.eco slash podcast. And to help spread the word about the podcast, tap on this episode and share Good Together with your friends and family. A simple text message helps us grow and create change around the world. time again, you texted, emailed, and DM'd us for our take on a planet-friendly way to purchase our tried and tested Brightly favorites. Because while the world of conscious consumerism is exploding, making mindful, planet-friendly purchases can still be a challenge. That's where the Brightly shop comes in. To reduce some of the eco-overwhelm, every product we sell has been hand-picked and vetted by the Brightly team. You won't find anything in the shop that has less than five stars. We've gone through hundreds of eco-products to discover new and emerging brands that solve sustainability problems for you every day. We even designed our own products like beeswax wraps to keep things fun and to help you live brightly. So how do we help you shop sustainably? The shop launches on the first Monday of each month and is open for five days. So the shorter, planet-friendly shopping window allows us to only order what we need. After the shop closes, we pack and ship out products in bulk. This low-impact supply chain reduces waste and keeps the planet happy. Brightly is also climate neutral certified. Because we are committed to climate action, we have set our entire carbon footprint from operations to shipping. We believe in the power of collective change, and we are so glad you're joining us on this journey. Go to shop.brightly.eco to see what's in store. Use code GOODTOGETHER at checkout to receive two free hand-blown, ethically made wine glasses with any purchase. Simply add the wine glasses to your cart and apply the code at checkout. Scientists say that climate change is already affecting every region across the world, and animals are actually responding quicker than humans in some cases. There are evolutionary shifts taking place in many of the species that inhabit our planet, from lizards developing bigger, grippier toe pads to help them hold on tight during hurricanes, to tiny seabirds switching their feeding patterns after thousands of years. In this week's episode, Thor Hansen, a biologist and the author of the book Hurricane Lizards and Plastic Squid, is sharing the remarkable stories of how animals are adapting to climate change right before our very eyes. He's also revealing what these animals can teach us, particularly how we should be responding to the climate change crisis ourselves. I love this conversation. I had a ton of fun talking with Thor. I can't wait for you to dive into this episode right now. 
Hi, Thor. Welcome to Good Together. We're so excited to have you. Well, thank you for having me on, Laura. So one thing that I'm just so excited to talk about today is a topic that has been top of my mind for a long time and top of our community's minds for a long time, which is, you know, how are animal species needing to adapt to climate change? Because we've talked a lot about, um, you know, the impacts that it's going to have, obviously, on our um, species. But when we think about various animal species, there's so many questions. So um, I'm really excited to welcome Thor Hansen today. And Thor, I wonder if you could just start us off a little bit um, by telling us a little bit about your background um, and we'll get into it. Sure. Well, I was always the kid with uh, the fishing pole and the uh, jar for collecting frogs and earthworms and things. I always had an interest in the natural world and turned that into a career and an education in biology. And I also had you know, a growing concern, as many of us have, over the impacts that we're having on the natural world. So I steered myself towards the conservation biology field, which uses biological research in ways that we can feed back into our conservation efforts, not just how nature works, but what we can do to protect nature. And so that was going along swimmingly, but there were many things that I was encountering in my work and seeing in the literature, in the sciences that were fascinating and important discoveries that I didn't see getting out beyond our relatively limited audience of peer-reviewed journals and so forth, which is an essential part of science. But there are many times where I felt we needed to take our stories further. And so over the past decade or so, I have begun devoting more and more of my time to the storytelling of science, to translating these important ideas and discoveries uh, into books and other media for distribution to a wider audience. And, and, and that includes things like uh, your podcast here today. That's so wonderful to hear. And I love to hear about just like sort of how you, you know, started even from childhood thinking about the natural world around you. And one of the um, important pieces I think that you've published on some of these topics is your new book, which is called Hurricane Lizards and Plastic Squids. <laughs> um, and you go into really some of the ways that animals have adapted to climate change. So I'm curious to know, why did you feel that it was important to tell these animal stories right now um, and, and to talk about really how they've evolved? Well, I think we're all at this point really familiar with that iconic image of the, the poor polar bear stranded on a shrinking iceberg. Yeah. Yeah, we all know that image well now, but too often that is the stand-in for the entire biological response to climate change. And I felt there was so much we were overlooking in our public discourse about this topic, because after all, it's not really the change so much that matters as the response to that change. In that if all plants and animals got along just as well in all conditions, then tweaking the weather one way or another wouldn't matter in the slightest. But of course, that's not how nature works. The diversity of life on this planet is this wonderful accumulation of specialty, if you will. All of these species adapted to particular environmental conditions. And when those conditions change, the species must adapt. And it is the sum of their responses that really will determine the future theirs as well as our own. 
I, I just, I totally agree. And, you know, you're, you're completely right on the, on the ball with the, the polar bear analogy, right? That is what we have all kind of internalized as the, you know, the ultimate example of a species having to adapt. But if you just look around, I mean, I think a great example, and we'll get into more specifics, but I think a lot about um, coyotes in urban areas. And um, I, I live in Seattle, but I'm from Texas originally. And I've dealt with coyotes pretty much, or, you know, uh, those types of animals pretty much wherever I've lived. And it's, it's so sad because you see, you know, neighbors upset because the coyotes are getting into, you know, their, their pets, but you also feel bad for the animals that are being pushed out of their habitat. And so I just think like, that's just one example, um, of, of an animal being disrupted by a human, uh, behavior. Right. And I think we can all agree that climate change is being caused to some degree by humans. So um, that, that to me is always what I think about, but I know we'll talk a little bit more about like, like specific climate change examples as well. Yeah, well, I think you've hit on a really important point, and, and that is that one of the other frustrations with the old polar bear image is that it gives us this impression that climate change and the biological impacts are something distant and remote. It's happening far away from us, when in fact, we can look in our own backyards and see the story of climate change playing out everywhere. So that is, you know, and your coyote example, another, you know, example of a species responding to human impacts in a place that we can see right close to home. And I think that's another aspect of this that I really wanted to draw out in the book. Absolutely. So let's get into some more examples. Um, I know I just kind of mentioned coyotes, but your book is full of really, really interesting examples. Um, one that I thought was was very interesting was the anole lizard, which I believe I my brother had some subspecies of this as a pet growing up. I'm almost positive. <laughs> <laughs> and it could very well be. There are a lot of anole species in the world. It is a small style of lizard that's sort of a distant cousin to the iguana. So you can picture a small iguana-shaped lizard that would fit uh, in your hand, and that is an anole. And this particular story comes to us from the Turks and Caicos Islands in the Caribbean, and a fellow named Colin Donahue, who is a herpetologist, and he was down there studying this species of lizard that lives in those islands as part of a larger study about the impact of non-native rats. The idea was you go out and you measure all the lizards, and you measure other things in the habitat, and then you remove these invasive rats and see how the native flora and fauna respond. So he had finished up his field work with his team and they'd all gone home. And then two hurricanes struck those islands back to back with winds that exceeded 175 miles per hour and really devastated the habitat. And of course, the human community, the natural community, everyone was reeling from the effects of these hurricanes. And it's not surprising that the rat project was put on an indefinite hold. But what Colin realized was that he was in an unusual position where he could shift his research to study not the impacts of rats, but study the impacts of the hurricanes mm. and ask the question, are the the survivors, the surviving lizards different in some way than the population he just measured? So he went back. And he found himself in a sort of scientific deja vu, repeating the exact same experiment he had just conducted six weeks earlier. And when he ran the numbers, he found that, in fact, the lizards were different. 
The survivors were the lizards with large toe pads and strong front legs, which more or less made sense to him. He could imagine these lizards, you know, hanging on tight in a windstorm, and those would be advan- you know, advantages in that situation. Sure. But they also had short back legs, and that was mysterious to him. And he needed to conduct a little experiment to figure out what was going on. But luckily, he was a very creative scientist, and he had thought ahead and brought a uh, brought a leaf blower with him to <laughs> the it. island. Yeah, and he brought this leaf blower because he wanted to see what lizards did in hurricane force winds. And since you can't bloody well stand out there in a hurricane taking notes on lizards, he reenacted a hurricane. He recreated one on the porch of his hotel room with the leaf blower. <laughs> it's so creative, but it, it makes sense, right? <laughs> it makes sense. And so he filmed all of this with high-speed video so he could really understand what the lizards were doing. And of course, when he uploaded some of those films onto YouTube, he got a lot of hits because it was a pretty crazy-looking experiment. <laughs> um, but more importantly, it perfectly explained to him what he'd seen in his data. Because yes, indeed, the lizards grip tightly to sticks during hurricanes, uh, but their back legs begin to slip as the wind increases. And when you get up to hurricane force, the whole body of the lizard is flapping like a flag in the wind, stretched out straight like a banner, holding on with those strong front legs and the big toe pads. But the short back legs then reduce drag on the body so the lizards can hang on just a little bit longer. And that can be the, the difference really between life and death or survival of the fittest in this case. So what he realized in that situation was that he had measured natural selection taking place not over the course of hundreds or thousands of years, but over the course of really a single field season. It's just, it's so fascinating. And then, of course, he captured it for YouTube, which is very, um, you know, culturally appropriate <laughs> right now. Absolutely. <laughs> that he did it. And maybe one day we'll read about that. Um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll think about that from that perspective. But I think it's really interesting that he had the foresight to make these connections, right? I think some people might observe um, those you know, the shorter back legs and think, well, this is strange and kind of move on. But I love that, that in the story that he really had the, the thought to think about, well, this is probably related to climate change. Let me let me start to experiment and hypothesize. Um, I think another good way to, um, you know, think about changes in animal populations is to go directly to people that interact with them on more of a daily basis. And so fishermen, of course, uh, that being their entire job are oftentimes great resources for information about the variants in species, whether they're talking about fish or other aquatic life. And so another animal that you mentioned in the book is called the Humboldt squid. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about uh, what's going on with the squid and sort of like how the fishermen um, were, you know, kind of worried and, and they are worried about what's going on. Sure. Well, you've really hit it on the head in that people who make a living off the land or who spend a lot of time in nature, whether they are fishing or whether they are hunting or whether they are bi biologists, what, anyone, gardeners, anyone who's outdoors a lot is seeing the impacts of climate change. And these fishermen who notice this trend are in Mexico. And they have traditionally fished for these jumbo squid, the Humboldt squid in the Gulf of California. And the squid disappeared from many of the fishing grounds there after a series of marine 
heat waves swept through the region. And everyone assumed that the squid had simply left, departed. As so many species are doing, they were, they were dispersing to other areas looking for the conditions they're used to. But it wasn't until some scientists went out and did some surveys that they realized that something else even more remarkable had happened. And that is the squid were still there, but they were so different in how they were living and even in the shapes and the sizes of their bodies that people hadn't realized they were there at all. So in this situation, what the Humboldt squid were demonstrating was what biologists call plasticity. They had the ability already built into their genetic makeup, unlike those anole lizards we were talking about, which are actively evolving and their population is, is trending in a certain direction toward those larger towpads over time and so forth. These squid had natural abilities already built into their system in that when that water started to heat up, something triggered uh, the young squid, either at the stage of the egg or even at the very smallest stages to adopt a different lifestyle. And the same genes were expressed in different ways. So leading to a different strategy, they rather than uh, uh, grow to four, five, six feet in length, they grow to a fraction of that size and they matured in half the time and they lived half as long and they ate different things so that these small squid that, you know, a few were being caught were being thrown back as juveniles or a different species. But in fact, those were the Humboldt squid in a new form. They had responded not by departing, but by taking on a totally different life strategy. When you think about reducing your carbon footprint, your mind probably goes to reducing the amount of meat you eat or conserving energy in your home. While both of those can make an impact, another method that doesn't get nearly enough attention is greening your finances. A 2020 report found that 35 of the world's biggest banks have given $3.8 trillion to fossil fuel companies since 2016. If your bank doesn't have the same values as you do, there's no better time than now to make the switch to Aspiration. Aspiration is an online banking alternative that offers socially conscious and sustainable ways to spend and save so you can make money while making the world a better place. And unlike the big banks, Aspiration doesn't use your deposits to fund oil pipelines or exploration. We love that Aspiration is a B Corp and 1% for the Planet member. They also give you the option to plant a tree with every single purchase. With Aspiration Plus, you can earn $200 when you spend $1,000 in the first 60 days of the account opening. You also get 10% cashback when shopping with Aspiration's conscious coalition partners, such as Brightly. Ready to make the switch to Aspiration? Head to aspiration.com forward slash Brightly. That's A-S-P-I-R-A-T-I-O-N.com forward slash brightly to learn more about socially conscious finance and sign up for a new cash management account. Aspiration Financial LLC member SIPC Aspiration is not a bank and is not affiliated with Brightly. Finding stylish footwear that's also sustainable isn't easy. Trust me, I've tried. But thanks to Vionics Beach Line, I've officially found a pair of sneakers I never want to take off. 
Bionic Beach is great for conscious consumers as the shoes feature an eco-friendly outsole, 80% of which is rubber and 20% of which is made from a soybean-based compound. These shoes also feature a canvas fabric made with natural materials, and they're completely vegan certified, so you can rest assured that no animals were harmed in the making of the shoes. Something I also love about these shoes is the fact that they are completely washable. I love going on long walks and hikes around San Francisco where I live, so my shoes are bound to get dirty after a while. It's great knowing that once it's time to give them a good clean, I can toss them into the washing machine and it's completely effortless and they always come out looking and feeling brand new. Comfort is also key when looking for sustainable footwear, and this line delivers support and comfort without sacrificing style. In fact, Bionic is so confident that you love your new kicks that they have a 30-day wear test. That means you can return them for a full refund within 30 days, if you're not satisfied for any reason, even if you've worn them outside. Are you ready to step into the world of sustainable footwear? Check out the Vionic Beach line at vionicshoes.com and use the code BRIGHTLY at checkout for free shipping on your order. That's V-I-O-N-I-C-S-H-O-E-S.com and the code BRIGHTLY for free shipping on your new pair of eco-friendly shoes. Wow. I mean, I think it's, you know, it's just one example of something that we're seeing happen all over the world. Um, but in, in my, from my perspective, I think just the, the, the visualization of something shrinking in size due to stress, I feel like that's, we, we all, I'll make a bad joke here, but I feel like we do that all the time every day, right? <laughs> when we get stressed <laughs> out, we kind of shrink a little bit. No, but I think just thinking through how awful that is um, to, to actually see a species go through that on a permanent basis. Um, and, you know, just the, the impact that warmer water temperatures are having is, is just so outsized and large. And there's so many different sort of butterfly effects happening there. But to see this one in, in a very visceral visual way, um, when you look at photos of, of the squid side by side, it's, it's fascinating. So, um, you know, and of course, we're always, I think, thinking about the aquatic life. That's something that comes up, I think, very frequently, we talk about uh, climate change and rising uh, sea temperatures. So this was I loved the story as well. Yeah, it, it is fascinating and fascinating to see that it can happen so quickly. I think as biologists looking out into the world and seeing so many species struggling to adapt to this rapid change, in, in some way, we all wish that species had as much of this plasticity as the Humboldt squid because it allows a rapid response, right? And those squid are still there in similar or in some cases, even greater numbers in that habitat because they have this ability to roll with the punches, so to speak, uh, and, and quickly adapt to warmer water. Absolutely. Uh, another story I wanted us to get into. Um, I, I love, I personally love birds and I was fascinated to hear about the story of a bird I hadn't heard about called a dove key. Um, and these are tiny seabirds in the Arctic. And, you know, in your book, you describe how they have switched up their feeding patterns to adapt to their changing environment. So they've been, you know, having to actually go to a completely new food source nearby after they've been eating the same thing for thousands of years. And, in addition to being a bird fan, the other reason why I like this story is because this is something I've asked myself frequently when I read about extinction of species or, you know, um, uh, species kind of going away because their food source goes away. Um, we're, I'm very close to orca populations here in the Seattle uh, area and Puget Sound. And 
one of the native orca populations is declining because salmon populations have declined. And one of the questions my husband always asks me is like, well, why don't they eat something else, right? Like, I feel like there's a lot of other food sources out there. So would love to hear a little bit more about, I guess, answering that question and sort of how dovekeys have actually decided to go on and do that. It's a marvelous example. It really is. If you think back again to that polar bear image, and if you could look past the bear to the edge of the ice, you might catch a glimpse of a dovekey because that is their favorite habitat. The edge of the pack ice up in the Arctic, which is rich in the krill, the little plankton species upon which they feed. And that habit has made them vulnerable to climate change in that as the ice gets farther and farther from the islands where dovekeys breed, they have farther and farther to fly to gather food to feed to their chicks. So it's that period of nesting that makes them so vulnerable to climate change. And biologists have long predicted that they would be an early casualty because ultimately, as the ice got too far, the birds would not be able to gather enough food to feed their chicks. You would see the population collapse. Until uh, this theory fell apart, when some scientists led by a wonderful French scientist named David Gremillet and others, they went up into the Russian Arctic to a place called the Franz Josefland Archipelago, which is in the high Arctic, these marvelous wilderness islands up there where dovekeys breed. And they attached their little transmitters to some dovekeys and let them go again to see what was happening. And they had these predictions that the dovekeys would have to fly. They'd done the math. It was they were going to have to fly an hour to get to the edge of the pack ice. So when they got their first batch of data back, they were astounded to see that the dovekeys had been in the air for less than four minutes. Wow. And suddenly they had to come up with a whole new theory, a whole new research project because their their uh, expectations had been so upended. And what they realized was that the dovekeys had indeed pivoted from their ancient habit of feeding along the edge of the pack ice to a new feeding opportunity that had been created by climate change in that the glaciers on the islands were, of course, melting. And as that meltwater poured down the valleys and out into the fjords, it left this, you can see it, this you know, milky blue meltwater rushing out of the fjord and then slamming into the dark currents of the Arctic Ocean. And these researchers realized, they knew that when you have two different kinds of water like that coming together, it creates this curtain underwater where they slowly mix together. But for things like plankton, swimming from one kind of water into another that's so different is like driving into a brick wall. And right. they are stunned. They are, in some cases, killed by that transition. So the dovekeys had recognized this. They had discovered this food source that was right on the doorstep of their breeding colony. And they were all out there plucking plankton off of that underwater curtain. And in fact, their population, uh, at least in that uh, breeding location, was thriving. Well, and see, and that's just a great example of a species that can adapt, right? That has, you know, the, um, I guess the intelligence and also the just ability to, to adapt because sometimes it's not even possible. So I, I've already kind of given an example of declining orca populations sort of in, in my backyard as it were. Um, but I'm curious to know, like, do you think we're going to keep seeing more of these adaptations and with, within, uh, species or, you know, what happens when, when these, um, you know, 
wildlife species can't adapt quickly enough? Well, the answer, of course, is yes and no. And I think your orca example is a very good one because it illustrates one of the major trends that we see from all of these climate change biology studies. And that is in this time of rapid change, the species that are generalists, that are flexible in their habits and can roll with the punches, they have a great advantage over species that are specialists and that only do one thing. They might do that one thing very, very well, like the orcas that you're referring to, these populations that have that have specialized on eating not just one uh, kind of fish, salmon, but one species of one kind of fish, a particular yeah. kind of salmon, the Chinook, that are so rich in fats and so large and so forth. Great idea to specialize on those in a stable period of time when there are plenty of salmon around. But now that we see rapid change from the impacts of human fishing and habitat loss and so forth, compounded by climate change, and those salmon are scarce, the orca that have specialized are in trouble. And so we see this pattern then playing out all over the place where the the, the creatures that we worry about most are the ones that have specialized. They may be pollinators that really visit only one or two kinds of plants and have, have established tight bonds with those plants. Well, what happens when the plants start blooming at different uh, times of year due to the changes in the climate? These sorts of, of, of systems and relationships that are specialized are more at risk. And that's one of the important uh, take-home messages from climate change biology. It doesn't make scientists worry less about this crisis, but it can help them to worry smart. It can help them to identify the creatures and plants that are most at risk so we can allocate scarce resources in terms of policy and conservation effort to the species and systems that need our help the most. And I I love thinking about it from that perspective, too, because uh, when people listen to Good Together or they read a Brightly article or they're excited to become what we call conscious consumers, even that can seem like an overwhelming, daunting piece, right? Where you're like, I don't even know where to start. So we typically give people like a list of really quick things they can start to think about in their daily life because the thought of trying to completely change your life in order to make the world a better place can be can be very daunting. And I think if you think about it in the example you just gave, which is, you know, scientists who focus on climate change, how, there's so many different things they could go after or spend their life's work on. But if you can narrow things down to what's the most urgent or, you know, in a conscious consumer case, maybe what's the easiest or um, uh, maybe the action that you could do every day. Uh, I think it makes so much sense. Um, and you know, when hearing hearing your your um, story, I almost wanted to say like, it'd be cool if somebody could be a teacher to animals, <laughs> right? Yeah. That, that could be your, your your goal. Go pick a species and go teach them how to survive. You got to learn their language and things. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. How do we how do we have a a, a lesson plan for surviving climate change? <laughs> That's right. Um, so you know, what can we learn from the animals, right? What can they teach us about how we as humans should be responding to the climate change crisis? I think there are a number of take-home messages from studying these natural responses. And one of the most important really is to remind us that in the end, in spite of all of our technologies and advancements, we're really just one more species responding to this crisis from the very same basic tool set. And 
To illustrate that, I'd like to think about the recent hurricane that hit New Orleans, Mm. a large storm bearing down upon that city that, of course, had suffered so greatly from Hurricane Katrina in 2004, and in the interim had built a new seawall. The Army Corps of Engineers and and, uh, so forth had gone out and designed and built a new seawall to protect the city from storm surge. And so here's the test. Here comes this large hurricane bearing down upon the city. And in fact, the seawall held, which is a marvelous uh, you know, example of adaptation in place. What uh, you know, a species can do to stay where they are and adapt to new conditions. Well, we, we demonstrated that very well. And you see that same thing in nature. Look at the dove keys that switched to a new food source. Look at the squid that adapted their whole, their whole body shape to stay where they were. That's one of the major things that animals and plants do, right? But another major response that we see in nature is movement. Between 25 and 85% of all the creatures on the planet are now adjusting their ranges, spreading out across seascapes and landscapes, looking for the conditions that they're used to. They're moving in response to climate change. And what's interesting about the New Orleans example is that, yes, the seawall held, but it was protecting an urban population that remains 20% smaller than it was in 2004. Because after Hurricane Katrina, tens of thousands of residents of New Orleans departed that city. They decided that that habitat was no longer suitable for them and they never came back. And so you see in that New Orleans example, um, these two major themes from nature playing out in human populations as well. And I think that is a fascinating thing to keep in mind as we gauge and calibrate and execute our own response. Absolutely. And so to kind of wrap things up, I we always like to end on a note of action for our audience so that they can leave not only feeling, you know, um, educated and inspired, but also, um, you know, excited to, to take some action and, and do some positive things for the planet. And so you talk a lot about taking small steps as individuals to fight climate change, which of course is something we're all about at Brightly and Good Together. So how do these small actions help create change? And what are some things you'd recommend our listeners do to better help the planet? Sure. You will hear again and again from naysayers that you know taking action personally for something as huge as climate change is, oh, it's, it's, it's trivial, it's immaterial, it can't make a difference. But that is wrong. And not just a little bit wrong, it is the opposite of the truth. Yep. In fact, it is the small actions that we all take that will accumulate and lead to the change that we need. I believe that firmly and we see the same thing in nature. We see how the responses of individual creatures and species determine the fates of populations, of communities, of ecosystems, and we see the same thing uh, in our own population. What we're really talking about long-term as a solution to the climate crisis is a fundamental cultural shift in our relationship to energy. Not only how we produce it, uh, but how we use it and how much of it our lifestyles demand. And so the small things that we do in daily life add up to that cultural change. Cultures don't change from the top down. They change from the bottom up. So yes, we need stronger policies. Yes, we need stronger leadership to carry them out. But those things in many cases will be the results 
of a cultural change, not the cause of it. And so I truly believe that it is doing what we can in daily life that will make that difference. It boils down to how we choose to shop and how we choose to travel and how we choose to drive or uh, cut the grass or you know hang the laundry, all of these things that have what we call in biology a, a positive feedback loop. Meaning that you do this, it makes you feel better and you want to do more of it. Absolutely. I, I think of it, yeah, I mean, I think of it a lot in terms of, say you have a friend who's going through a bad patch. I don't know if there may have been a loss in the family or a health issue, and you really want to do something to help. You can't snap your fingers and fix their whole situation, but you can find a way to help. You can bring a meal or maybe you do some errands for them. And it does help them. And it also makes you feel better for having found a way to help. And I feel that is the same in how we treat the planet now, in that the small things we can do, you feel better when you do them, and that leads to more. And as those trends grow in our daily lives uh, and in our communities, that adds up to the change we need. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And I believe, you know, an example of this is just people currently questioning the use of single use plastic, right? Like, let's stop it. Let's stop. Let's stop um, accumulating as much plastic as we as we have as a society and as a world. And that's going to obviously have massive impacts on the world around us. So that's just one example. I absolutely agree. It's why we do this podcast. It's why, um, you know, I get up every day. I'm sure it's why you get up every day as well. Um, uh, so Thor, I wanted to just just thank you so much for coming to chat with us about this today on Good Together. I learned so much. Um, I feel like I'm going to go print out some posters of the dub key um, in my and put them in my office to just be inspired by that adaptation every day. <laughs> but I <Yes>. loved it. <laughs> joining us on another episode of good together as always you can get show notes and explore lots more content related to all things eco-friendly living by checking out brightly.eco slash podcast and don't forget to join in on the conversation that's happening on our facebook group simply search good together ethical shopping and it'll come up you can also leave us a question through voicemail the link is on brightly.eco slash podcast if you're into social media, give us a follow on Instagram, Facebook, and all of the channels. Our username is brightly.eco. Finally, we want to leave you with a reminder. Every day is a chance for you to create change, and you're already covered for today since you joined us here on the podcast. Stay kind and live brightly.